California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. You know, there is a little bit more to making a podcast than just talking into a mic and hitting publish. You need more than that. And I'm talking about a reliable hosting service so your time can be spent working on your show. You also want accurate download numbers. You want to see the audience that you're reaching. And you're going to want a web page that is simple and easy to work with. That's why I choose Blueberry. With its simple media hosting and fully integrated WordPress website, it can't get any easier. So if you host a show or if you're thinking about starting one, visit www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to give Blueberry a try for a month for free. Blueberry's support team will be right there every step of the way to help you migrate over so you won't lose any of your subscribers in the process. And if you're brand new to this, they can get your new show up and running. And with a month for free to try it out using promo code DREAM, what have you got to lose? There are a number of ways that you can support California Dreaming. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can spread the word about the show. You can recommend us in podcast and true crime fan groups. And you can leave the show a rating and a review on iTunes or whichever platform you listen to the show on. And if you would like to go a little above and beyond, you can also support the show on our Patreon. You can gain access to at least one exclusive episode per month and there are currently more than 40 episodes that you can binge, so it's a pretty good deal starting at just $1. In addition, there are about eight premium episodes available for supporters at the $5 and above tiers. This week, I'd like to thank Viv F., Catherine F., Elizabeth R., Patricia R. for coming back to Patreon, Deborah M., Rebecca C., Sarah S., Brandy K. also for returning, and Molly. I'd also like to thank Kay Myers, Stacy G, Dean S, and Neil C for raising their pledges to the next level. I will have more thank yous in some upcoming episodes if you've recently joined. And if you are unable to sign up for a monthly subscription to Patreon, you can help with a one-time donation to the show through our PayPal using our email, californiapod at gmail.com. Every little bit helps in keeping California Dreaming going. So thank you. This is a second part of a two-part series entitled The Tale of the Brink of Insanity. If you haven't listened to part one, which is episode 145, then pause this here, listen to part one first, and then come back to this. We left off with the family of missing nursing student Michelle Lee becoming increasingly frustrated with the manner in which law enforcement was handling the case. We're going to pick back up from there and see how the family splinters off from police and in how doing so, they, in some ways, did more to hinder the case than to help it. I found it to be an interesting dynamic, especially if we look at it through the lens of this not only being a divide between the loved ones and law enforcement, but also a divide in culturally based beliefs and philosophies. As Michelle's family continued to bombard Hayward police with their presence and their insistence that something terrible has befallen Michelle, it would be only two days after the vigil that they held that Michelle's family would be contacted by the police. They needed to come down right away. They've got some news to share with them. They suddenly had some vital information, 
and it resulted from the crime lab having the opportunity to go through Michelle's Honda CRV, which, as you recall, was discovered parked a couple of blocks away from the hospital the morning after she was last seen. And it was not the news that the family was hoping to hear. Based on the evidence discovered inside the vehicle, Hayward detectives officially changed the direction that they were going from searching for a missing person to this being investigated as a homicide, telling the family something along the lines of that they needed to somehow come to terms with the fact that Michelle was probably dead. And with that, the family was officially cut off from receiving any further information on the case, which isn't unusual. Police often keep things close to the vest. And you know, Michelle's family had been quite vocal in the media, trying to draw as much attention to the case as possible. So police probably figured that discretion was not this family's strong suit. There were just too many people too close to Michelle. Lots of young people with her siblings and cousins. And even if the police did decide to share some pertinent information with some of the elders in the family, it would still have to be limited. And I totally get that. But the family wasn't very receptive or accepting of what the police were trying to tell them. They wanted answers. The police wouldn't tell them what made them think Michelle was dead. And until they had an explanation as to what led police to reach that conclusion, until they were allowed to see the evidence for themselves firsthand, her family refused to believe what the police were telling them. And it only fueled their anger and frustration. But, you know, to me, I just don't think that the police would tell a family some news like that unless they had some really strong evidence that it was true. They had been very measured in what they were willing to think prior to the search of the vehicle. They weren't ready to jump to any conclusions until they themselves had the hard evidence. And if they searched the car, and based on what they found, and we're sitting here probably thinking that there was evidence of a violent event causing them to reach that conclusion that Michelle was likely dead, well then the family has got to understand that the police cannot risk any more information making its way into the media. So, I sympathize with Michelle's family. But at this point, there's this part of me that feels like they're kind of getting in the way of the investigation instead of allowing police to follow the evidence. There's nothing stopping the family from checking in with police every other day or so. But I feel like they just needed to let law enforcement do their job. Because look... If they were to tell Michelle's family we found a whole bunch of blood in the car and there was this blood spatter on the roof and on the door panels or whatever, and they go to the media and leak this information, the media is going to start speculating all over the place that Michelle was murdered in her car, that she was stabbed, that she was shot. Do we even know if it's Michelle's blood? And now the killer knows that the police are on to them and it gives that person a head start in destroying evidence even more or otherwise doing everything that they can to cover their tracks. The only people that the police want knowing the specific details of a crime like this is them and the killer. They need the media and everybody else to be kept in the dark. We know the need for the police to keep the information out there to a minimum, but Michelle's family is not accepting it. Inspector Ritchie understood the frustration of the family, but he had a murder to solve, and in order to do that, 
He had to distance the family from the investigation. And within Michelle's family, there was a divide when it came to how they wanted to handle her case. The younger ones, the kids and the cousins, the ones who were the first generation born here in the United States, they wanted to drum up as much noise and hoopla in the media as possible. They wanted Michelle's name and her face to be recognized far and wide, and they wanted every single media outlet across the country talking about her. And I'm all for the media getting involved in a case that needs that kind of attention. But for this, I'm not sure that is necessarily the right direction to go because the police really aren't dragging their feet with this. But the family thinks that they are. The pressure on the media is useful when police aren't doing anything or they have no leads. They will often go to the media themselves and appeal to the public for help if they think that that will stir up some leads. But if the police are telling the family, we're working on this, we have leads, we need to keep important information out of the media, I just think it's a good idea to just listen. It had only been a little more than a week. Give them time and space. They're doing their work. I realize that there are a lot of crimes out there that are under-investigated or completely blown off by police, but this is not one of them. This is one of the few times that I disagree with the manner in which the family was dealing with this because police aren't just sitting on their butts doing nothing. It does happen, but not this time. As for the other half of Michelle's family, the elders, they wanted this to stay a very private and personal family matter. After all, we're talking about a group of people who understood a struggle and a will to survive having been refugees fleeing Vietnam after the war ended, eventually making their way to America with the opportunity to live that dream. The children understood this, but they were not that old generation that internalized their struggles and dealt with things in a deeply private manner within the confines of the family. Because to the first generation born in America, they needed to be heard. To them, if the situation were reversed, and Michelle was out there looking for one of her loved ones that had gone missing, she would be doing the exact same thing. And they strongly felt that they owed her that. And along with that, they unfortunately refused to believe that Michelle was no longer alive, which is why they felt the need to stir up as much media attention as possible. Because to them, logic dictates that if she is alive, then there is somebody out there that must be seeing or knowing that something is going on and will come forward with the information just so they can bust down those doors and save her. Dreamers, what do you make of it? The police have told them, we looked in Michelle's car and we're pretty sure she's dead. We can't tell why we think that, but we think that. If the family continues to go to the media with their own versions of what happened, what they believe happened. Two weeks after Michelle went missing, the family arranged for a second vigil to be held. The sole purpose of this vigil was to make a public declaration that Michelle Lee was alive, that she is the victim of a kidnapping, and that it is urgent that everyone stay alert, stay vigilant. If you see something, say something. She is someplace being held against her will. Her life is in danger, and she needs to be rescued as soon as possible. 
bothered me a lot when I read all of this since they've been told by police that they're fairly certain Michelle is no longer alive. As I pointed out in the beginning of the story, I don't think it does anybody any good for the family to provide misleading information, no matter how much they want to believe in their hearts for their narrative to be true. I just think it's irresponsible and hurtful to the investigation. They've reached the conclusion that the police don't know what they're doing. So in order to rescue Michelle from wherever it is she's being held captive, her family feels like they're going to have to be the ones to do it and to do it on their own. As Michelle's family spends their time garnering as much media attention as possible with the hopes that someone will come forward with a tip that will lead to where Michelle is being held, the police are quietly and meticulously conducting their investigation. The thing that bothered them most from the beginning was what happened in that parking garage where Michelle was last seen. What happened in there? There were 18 cameras trained along the way that Michelle went from the hospital across the footbridge to the parking garage. Investigators got the footage and poured over it countless times. But they were missing something, something crucial. There was something that happened to Michelle in the few minutes between her going out of range of the camera to the time her vehicle left the garage 22 minutes later. What the hell happened in those 22 minutes? And what are they not seeing here? Well, there is a frustratingly disappointing reason why there was this missing piece of the puzzle. There was a camera perched in the garage right above the space where Michelle's car was parked. And that camera that night was not functioning. All of the other cameras and all of the other spaces Michelle happened to park under that one. The images that would have been captured in those moments were lost. And to investigators, it was maddening. On the family's end of the investigation, and by this point, there is no open line of communication between police and Michelle's family, which is frustrating for both sides because the family could be helpful but both sides are being stubborn about which direction they believe the investigation needed to go. Police were working under the presumption that Michelle was dead, and I don't believe that they were going to waste their time and resources if they did not feel that that was the right direction. While in the meantime, Michelle's family is pursuing human trafficking. And when I read that, I got so frustrated, even more so with this whole investigation. I guess maybe because... I know what Vietnamese families are like, and when I heard the Lee family was researching human trafficking, I just found it to be such a wrong direction to head in this investigation. And it's sad because we know that this isn't the likely scenario when someone falls victim to human trafficking. And to me, it just felt like Michelle's family has given in to believing some of the myths out there about human trafficking. And in this case, one of those myths is the idea that a victim of human trafficking must be held someplace against their will. They think Michelle was snatched up, kidnapped, and held captive. When the truth is, trafficking victims are usually groomed and then controlled psychologically. Things like making the victim feel a tremendous amount of fear, or having the victim become addicted to drugs, using threats against their families, that they might harm their families if they don't listen, 
or they have this feeling that they don't have any place else to go because they have no money and they have no home. So victims feel like they have to stay, that they have no choice. They also may be manipulated mentally, emotionally, possibly even thinking that they have feelings for their trafficker. Victims of trafficking are isolated from contact with others. Their personal belongings are withheld from them. There are threats to humiliate or shame them. They're afraid of possibly going to prison themselves. They might owe their trafficker a lot of money. There are so many factors in play here, and much of it has nothing to do with being forced into anything, but rather manipulated, coerced, using fear, shame, and blaming. Trafficking victims are often the most vulnerable in our society. Individuals who have been physically or sexually abused in the past, that experience some kind of severe trauma, that are dealing with an unstable home or poverty or inability to find work or they're homeless. These victims are specific and they're targeted. And if Michelle's family had done their homework, they would have found that she did not fit the profile of a human trafficking victim. These people that traffic, they're not going around snatching pretty girls off the streets. That is going to bring way too much unwanted attention. They want runaways. They want the ones that they can get come to them voluntarily through manipulative tactics. And if everyone thought the same thing Michelle's family was thinking, that this smart, pretty, independent, young nursing student was randomly grabbed off the street by a human trafficker, it actually does more harm than good when it comes to combating the problem as a whole. They don't want the stable, happy, successful, popular, well-liked college student. Too many people are going to be crawling all over the case to find that person. Too many people are going to be hunting them down. But that's what the Lee family pursued for about a month until it all just led them to one dead end after another. 34 days after Michelle went missing, the Lee family contacted police and informed them that they have hired a private investigator named Michael Frame. So what he came to find early on was that the parking garage was not one that was for the exclusive use of Kaiser Permanente employees. It was a public garage and people had access to come and go from it pretty much around the clock. So whatever happened to Michelle Lee in that garage happened relatively quickly and he believed that the person was in there waiting. He believed that Michelle was targeted and the person waiting for her knew that she would be coming to her vehicle eventually. Michelle's shift wasn't over for about two hours when she walked into the garage, so the person was already in there ready to kidnap her or grab her at the time she arrived there. But the biggest question still lingered. Why was Michelle going to her vehicle at that time before her shift was over? At that stage, the private investigator could not say with any degree of certainty why Michelle went to her car. And we have to ask ourselves, would that have been an unusual thing for her to do with just a couple hours left to go at work? The thought was perhaps she was either taking a quick break or there was something or someone that compelled her to go to her car for some reason. All they do know is that when she went... She was still wearing the scrubs that she would have been needing to wear if she had gone back. Another important detail is the fact that Michelle left her things back at the hospital. 
but it seems as though she did bring two things with her at least, her cell phone and her car keys. Her other belongings, and I'm assuming that would have consisted of perhaps her purse or a lunch carrier or whatever other personal effects that she brought with her to work that day, all of that other stuff was left behind, which was an indicator that she planned on going back. If you recall, the car was found approximately a half mile away from the hospital. It had been parked there, locked, and left in a residential area in front of an apartment building. The private investigator, he did find a witness who told him that they saw some headlights shining through the windows of their home at approximately four in the morning, the morning after Michelle went missing. And this person said that they heard some conversation coming from the car. So this led the investigator to believe that if it was Michelle's car, that this was the cause of the lights coming through the window, then the conversation most likely meant that it was coming from inside her vehicle and that meant to him that there was more than one person involved in this. But the witness could not say for sure that the lights came from Michelle's car, but it seemed to be from the general direction from where the car was parked. So Michael Frame here is leading the family to believe that there are a pair of kidnappers, at least. Based not only on this conversation that was overheard by the witness, but also by the circumstances in which Michelle was taken, that whoever took her were waiting for her, that they forced her into her vehicle and drove out of the garage pretty quickly. And it was likely that there was more than one person involved. The private investigator also believed with a degree of certainty that the person or persons who took Michelle were people that she knew. They knew her schedule, they knew her car, they knew she'd be parked in that garage, and that there was a strong possibility that Michelle's family and friends would know who this person was, they just didn't know it yet. They believed the person was close, closer than the family had been thinking. Remember, they're chasing down human traffickers. Thankfully, with the family bringing in their own investigator, he's beginning to move them away from that thought that she was trafficked. And there's one more thing that Michael Frame was going to be able to do that police could not do. And that would be to provide a tip line that anyone with information about Michelle could call without having to go through the police. Because there are people out there that really don't want to have anything to do with law enforcement. And another drawback to calling police with tips is they have an entire jurisdiction of crime to deal with. When a family hires their own investigator, they're dedicated to your case. So if they say, hey, we're looking for information about Michelle, call us confidentially, anonymously. We're not law enforcement, and we're looking for one person and only one person. Not only did they think that it was more likely that someone would call if they had some leads, but also that their lead would not get lost in the backlog of calls coming into the police department. But unfortunately, the calls and the tips that did come in all led to nowhere. And I've told you that the Lee family had absolutely no faith in the Hayward Police Department, that they were dragging their feet, they were sitting on their asses, and they were making zero progress. Well, their private investigator was not faring much better. Don't forget, the family is just assuming because they're not speaking to the police anymore. 
So, in another effort to jumpstart the case, the family went public with a $100,000 reward for any information leading to Michelle's whereabouts, still working under the assumption that she was alive. They figured that this was 100,000 reasons to bring Michelle back to them, and they just wanted the ordeal that she was going through to come to an end and hoped that this would do it. And it's heartbreaking for the family to put themselves through that anguish and torture, thinking how much Michelle is out there somewhere suffering. And that's what's motivating them. That's what's keeping them going. They hope that no matter what, they'll just bring her home and make it okay again. That's their mindset. That's their driving force. And my dreamers, in a side note to this story, and maybe it's because I'm feeling so much of this because I'm from a Vietnamese family, but I read an article in this case that said Michelle and Michael's mother, she died when Michael was 11 and Michelle was 14. They were taken in by their cousin Christine's family. Their mom found out that she had breast cancer and never told them. The cancer took her life pretty quickly. So when it happened, nobody saw it coming. It was a complete shock. And I can't tell you how much I am feeling that right now. When my mom came to the United States in 1973, all of her younger siblings and her parents stayed behind in Vietnam until my mom would be able to work out the arrangements to get them out and over here to the United States. She had married my dad, you know, he was American, and they were going to go through the processes legally to get all the money together that they need to do it the right way. Well, my mom's dad passed away in 1979, and then her mother in 1980 before they were ever able to make it to the United States. My mom's siblings and her mother actually hid the fact that their father had died from my mom for months Her brothers and sisters wrote letters to my mom pretending that they were coming from her dad until my mom was finally able to figure it out because the letters she was getting just weren't the same as the one that she had been in the past. How weird is that, right? When my mom told me that, I was completely shocked. So when I read this about Michelle and Michael's family, I was like, oh yeah, then it's not just me, right? (laughs) How weird, totally weird to hide stuff like that. And then, I don't know if all of you remember, but one of my mom's brothers died last year in March of 2019. Now, he seemed like he was sick, but he wasn't going to the doctor, and he wasn't saying anything to anyone. He had come to live with my mom in the last year of his life because he really didn't have any place else to stay. My mom and my uncle did not get along at all, so they barely spoke while he lived there. Eventually, he became so sick, he couldn't move anymore, and he ended up falling and injuring himself, so my mom had to call for an ambulance. Turns out he had cancer in so many parts of his body, they didn't know which one was killing him. So he basically just needed to be kept comfortable until he died. He never told anyone how sick he was or how sick he was feeling, just like Michelle's mom. And then when he died, and I knew he was dying, it was only a matter of time, my mom didn't call me and tell me till like two days later. And when she did call me and tell me, she told me she didn't want to tell me at all. 
but she had to because she knew she needed my help with the arrangements. And you want to know the kicker? My mom and several of her siblings kept my uncle's death a secret from one of their sisters because they didn't want her coming around and they didn't want her at the funeral. So yeah, the secrecy is weird, but apparently it's a thing. Michelle's brother believed that the reason their mom didn't tell them was to protect them. The reason my mom's family does these things, I don't know. It's too hard to try and explain in a sentence or two. But anyway, I just thought it was kind of interesting how Michelle's mom had kept that terminal cancer a secret from her children. And I thought that it would kind of give us a little bit more of an insight into this family as well as this culture. Because I honestly thought up until this point that my family was weird, but apparently they do this. So anyway, as the weeks dragged on without bringing anyone closer to finding Michelle, the media interest in the story died down. It was then a member of Michelle's family did something kind of extraordinary, and I found to be somewhat surprising. One of Michelle's uncles, who lived down in San Diego, reached out to someone who had gone through a similar tragic experience, a woman named Carrie McGonigal. Her name may not ring a bell with some of you immediately, but her daughter's name might. Amber Dubois. Amber was 14 years old when she went missing on February 13, 2009 in Paula, California, which is in San Diego County. Just over a year later, another young girl, 17-year-old Chelsea King, went missing on February 25, 2010 in Rancho Bernardo, also in San Diego County. A DNA match to evidence found on Chelsea's clothing was made and linked to a registered sex offender named John Albert Gardner III. He ultimately also admitted to being responsible for Amber's disappearance and on a few conditions agreed to, he led investigators to her remains. And those conditions included that they could not use what he was going to tell them about her location against him in court and an agreement to not seek the death penalty. Gardner kept up his end of the bargain and Chelsea's body was found five days after she went missing on March 2, 2010. And with the information Gardner provided, Amber's skeletal remains were found six days later on March 8th. And we did cover this story on California Dreaming in episode 97. So Amber's mother, Carrie, is the person that Michelle's uncle reached out to for advice on what to do. In the wake of Amber's murder, Carrie's call to action was to become involved in a search organization called Team Amber Rescue in honor of her daughter's memory. I looked around for the organization online, and they don't have a website, but they do have a Facebook page. And unfortunately, there doesn't seem to be much activity on there since 2015. I scrolled around, and the last search that they posted about was Bryce Las Pisa back in 2013, which we also covered on our show, along with Justin at the Mysterious Circumstances podcast. But anyways, Michelle's case was happening a little more than a year after Chelsea's murder and two years after Amber's. In making contact with Carrie, she was able to put Michelle's family in touch with Mark Class since he was located in the Northern California area. 
And many of you know who Mark Class is. He is the father of murder victim 12-year-old Polly Class in Petaluma, California. We also covered her story in episode 26. Mark and Carrie had become friends through their shared experiences of being in this tragic community of parents who lost children to violence. Mark had been through this, and over the years, he has been a very outspoken advocate for families going through exactly the kind of thing that the Lees were going through. He had relationships with the media, with law enforcement, and thankfully, he became involved when he did. Because look, I've made no secret of the fact that I'm not a fan of how they're handling the search for Michelle, along with their resistance in dealing with law enforcement. Fortunately, Mark was going to be able to step in and help get them on the right track with what they were doing and how they were doing it. Because everything the Lees had been doing up to that point had gotten them absolutely nowhere. In an interview with NBC, Mark said that he met up with the Lees in this tiny little rundown motel in Hayward. Just a whole bunch of her family crammed in this itty bitty little room. All of them a mess. All of them stressed out, all of them tired, clacking away on their computers, trying to do anything and everything that they could think of to continue to bring the media attention back on Michelle. The first thing Mark told them was they cannot do this from this room. The whole vibe, the environment, all of it was so disheartening and spirit crushing. Mark knew immediately that this was working against them compounded by the fact that they had absolutely no idea what they were doing. They went into the search for Michelle, trying to be as loud as they could, but they were doing it completely blind, shooting in the dark. Mark Class told them, you have to establish a headquarters. You have to have a command center for the search. That will be the epicenter of your case. Then you need volunteers. And the command center will be the central location where everything starts from and happens. And from there, the media will begin to mobilize. And this will be the place. This is the headquarters. This is where they will come each day for minute-to-minute updates. Mark gave the Lee family a sense of organization and practicality. And he also told them that they needed to get into a better headspace to be in while they were doing it. Mark, however, did not tell the Lees about Polly, at least not at the time. They didn't know who he was or what he had gone through, as he was almost 20 years removed from his tragic story at that time. Mark Class never forgot the heartbreak that he experienced. And in doing this, helping families like the Lees who are trying to navigate through something like this was not only his call to action similar to Carrie's, but also his catharsis. Having a loved one go missing, it throws a family into this world of sadness and grief and confusion. And you just run the gamut of emotions. And you try and lay out a pragmatic, methodical process in the search. To do that is nearly impossible when your head's not in it. And that's where Mark is able to step in and guide a grieving family. Where does Mark find the strength? Well, statistically, most missing people are found, and that fulfills him. The outcome is not always what the family had hoped for, but no matter how heartbreaking some of the outcomes may be, for Mark, 
it's still good work because it's so important. And another thing that Mark Class told the Lee family, you have to have the police on your side. It had been bothering me so much up to this point that the Lees opted to reject what the police were telling them and to go off onto their own investigation, which ultimately led to nothing but barreling through the case blindly with no direction and no idea what they were doing. And Mark Class, he was like, no, you cannot do this without the help of law enforcement. You need to fix the relationship. You need to have clear and open and respectful communication with them. So once the family set aside their anger and frustration with the police, the police began to open up to the family. Thank goodness, right? And finally, law enforcement gave the Lee family some valuable little nuggets to work with. They gave them a specific location to search for Michelle. Of course, the Lee family continued to question law enforcement. Why? Why there? Why this spot? What's there? What do you know? Tell us what you know. But the police, they gave up a little bit more. They told the Lee family, cell phone towers brought us there. Now, they could not say with any degree of certainty if it was Michelle herself that traveled this path or if it was just her phone, but the towers picked up her signal the night that she was last seen leaving a digital footprint in and around San Francisco's East Bay. Her phone made its way up and down some streets. It traveled through a little parkway or a back road. And then her phone entered a freeway and it continued to bounce off cell towers as it made its way right back to the parking garage, pinging from there at the very moment when Michelle's instructor saw her Honda CRV coming back into the garage and she tried to wave it down before it sped off again. The journey that that phone made gave the Lee family and Mark Class exactly what they needed, a specific area to search where a team of volunteers could be deployed. Mark was certain that Michelle was somewhere along the route that her cell phone traveled that night. I don't know how long police had that information, but can you see what could have possibly happened if they had caved into Michelle's constant badgering about telling them everything and turning them around and putting everything out there on blast in the media? If the Lees had gone to reporters and said, Michelle's phone traveled here, 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 and here, so everybody has to go out there. If you live, work, anywhere around this route, if you saw something, you must come forward. But this also would tip off the killer, who would now have the chance to move or hide or cover up what they've done. This time without leaving that digital footprint giving them away. But now, for police, with Mark Class as their liaison between themselves and the family, they know that he knows what to say and not to say to the media. And if the Lees are really finally allowing Mark to share what he knows and to help them have some clarity, then okay, the information can be shared. And Mark will rein this family in and make sure that what goes out to the media is careful and measured. Perfect. And what a relief, because everybody wants a resolution to this. It was taking way longer than it should have, because the Lees were really working against themselves, standing in their own way. But despite having a viable search area, it was still a large area, 
with rugged hills and canyons and ravines and brush. I mean, it's going to take a lot of work, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, and good-hearted people with a desire to help. Fortunately for the Lees, Mark Class has his foundation, and that's what they're all about. 49 days into Michelle's disappearance, Mark mobilized an army of volunteers who were going to spend as much time as they possibly could tirelessly looking for Michelle. Based on the information that police provided, Mark was able to narrow down a specific area along the route that the phone traveled where it seemed to have paused for a period of time. It is at that time and in that area where it is believed that something happened to Michelle. And that's where the grid search would begin. Using a system of marking off areas with tape, as well as reporting everything that they do and every area that they search back to police, a major component of this was to keep them in the loop. The police don't have the resources to put together a large-scale boots-on-the-ground search like this. But at the same time, the family and volunteers don't have the resources or the access to vital information that the police have, so it cuts both ways. And Mark constantly reminds the Lees, you are here to support the police effort to bring Michelle home. Be here to help the police. Do not hinder them. The search lasted over several weekends throughout August. More than two months since Michelle went missing, it was beginning to lose its momentum, but they kept going, making the frequent trips back and forth between San Diego and San Francisco so the Lee family could be there for every weekend search that was organized. The summer dragged on, and the temperatures were soaring, making everyone that much more weary as they tried to keep going. But the Lee family, while they still continued to believe that every day they did not find a trace of Michelle in these areas that police said her phone traveled, then that meant she was most likely alive somewhere. But still, regardless of what police were telling them about the likelihood that she was dead, the family worked under the assumption that she was alive, and the searching was not an effort in finding her remains, but for them, it was an effort in proving that she wasn't out there because she wasn't dead. The family also didn't know that while they were trying to find an alive Michelle Lee, police were working this case as a murder investigation. And despite what the Lees may or may not have thought about the perceived inactivity or disinterest on the part of law enforcement, they were actually very much aggressively investigating the case. Inspector Ritchie was, in fact, zeroing in on a suspect. A suspect that he strongly believed was responsible for not only Michelle being missing, but Michelle being dead. And that goes all the way back to the day or so after she went missing back in May. Remember, the evening after Michelle vanished, Inspector Ritchie paid her friend a visit, or ex-friend, Giselle Esteban. He was led there by Michelle's family, who had indicated that Giselle seemed to be the only person that Michelle had any real problems with. Giselle kind of played the dumb, ignorant card. Oh, she's missing? Really? Since when? Did you try calling her phone? I have no idea. You know, whatever. And Giselle, she is the one who really should have learned to keep her mouth shut. Because during that initial visit with Inspector Ritchie, she also said this. I'm actually looking for Michelle too. 
And Richie was like, well, okay, since when and why? And Giselle told him, for about a week because I wanted her to stay away from my daughter. Okay, that sounds aggressive, right? And to me, it would be kind of suspicious, but okay. I'd be a little bit concerned about this woman that I'm talking to. And why is she saying things like this about this missing woman? There is clearly some bad blood between these two ladies. Giselle was brought into the police station so they could speak to her more about Michelle. They talked to Giselle about her relationship with Michelle. They had once been pretty good friends, right? Giselle said they had once been so close, she considered Michelle to be like a sister to her. So police asked what happened, what caused this rift between the two of you? And Giselle answered by saying that Michelle made a mistake and that her boyfriend at the time, Scott, he also made a mistake. And it was a mistake that they made while she and Scott were still together. They were in a committed relationship. And they had not made this mistake, not once, but twice. And then Giselle had a little more to add to the story. She placed herself at the Kaiser Permanente Hospital just hours before Michelle went missing. Okay, so this has got Richie's attention. She said she was pregnant, and she had gone to the hospital for a prenatal visit. Giselle said that while she was there at Kaiser, she saw Michelle, and she was really surprised to see her old friend there. When she was pressed more, she was asked, what did you think? How did that make you feel? Giselle said she felt annoyed and irritated, and then she realized that she needed to calm down, to not elevate her own blood pressure because that might cause her some complications with her pregnancy. But regardless of what investigators might have been thinking in that moment, confounded by the things that Giselle was saying, take one look at the tiny, diminutive woman who's pregnant to boot. Is she really capable of subduing a bigger, stronger, and not pregnant Michelle Lee? Follow that up with disposing of her body? all on her own? I'm going to go with yes. I do believe it's possible, especially if there was some element of surprise involved, if Michelle never saw what was coming, coming, if she became weakened by injury or otherwise incapacitated. She'd be at the mercy of her attacker, even if her attacker was little and pregnant. Because I'm going to say this now, I don't think Giselle cared about anything beyond Michelle being out of the way. She didn't care about who she was hurting, and that included her own baby that she was pregnant with. But not really being sure of what to make of Giselle, they went ahead and sent her home after that second round of questioning at the police station. It was later that day that investigators were able to get a look inside Michelle's car a very sad and quiet place that quickly revealed itself to indeed have been the scene of an extremely violent event. There's blood, blood swipes, blood spills, blood drops, blood drops running downward by the pull of gravity, blood smears, blood spatters. The blood spoke of a brutal event having taken place within the confines of that car. And you know, police tried to tell the Lee family. They specifically called them in to tell them, you need to get to a place 
where you may need to become comfortable with the fact that Michelle may no longer be alive based on what was found inside her car, but they refused to believe. But police couldn't tell them that the inside of her car looked like a bloodbath. They couldn't allow too much information to be out there in order to protect the integrity of the investigation. From the looks of the distribution of the blood, it appeared that a confrontation took place in the front and Michelle was eventually placed in the back where it appeared that blood had pooled. The swipes of blood was a result of some moving around or manipulating of Michelle's body after she was injured, as she was bleeding, possibly still alive, but mortally wounded. So in trying to figure out what exactly happened to Michelle in that parking garage, investigators attempted to take another look at the surveillance videos of Michelle going to her car. They're looking back at the videos and seeing Michelle walking to her vehicle where it is parked. It's parked in the corner of the garage, out of range of most of the cameras, and right below the camera that wasn't working. But suddenly they notice that Michelle makes a shift in the direction that she was headed. She made a wide left turn, which then had her walking away from her car. And then she is suddenly seen walking back towards the car. And then within a few seconds of that, she came to a stop. So what the investigators needed to try and figure out is what caused her to turn, shift, come back, and stop. They theorized that someone was in the parking garage, but who? And was it somebody that Michelle knew? And what was it about this someone that caused those sudden changes in direction as she walked? Was she avoiding someone? Did someone call her name? What happened? Well, Inspector Ritchie thought that perhaps a clue that he discovered inside Michelle's car might give him a lead in the right direction. On the passenger seat in the front, he found an ID card from the nursing school where Michelle was a student. But the ID card was not Michelle's. And there really didn't seem to be a plausible reason for that particular ID card to be in her car. The card itself wasn't really hidden. It was just kind of stuck in the cushion of the passenger seat. But it had the name and picture of the person to whom the ID belonged. So when the inspector called Samuel Merritt Nursing School, the person he spoke to on the phone confirmed that the identification belonged to a new nursing instructor that was slated to begin teaching classes in about a week. The staff began to look around for the card when Richie suddenly heard someone in the background say, the ID card is gone. It was on my desk, but it's not there. Someone had stolen the card. And fortunately for police, figuring out who did it wasn't going to be all that difficult. You see, this ID card is also an electronic key that gives the staff access to various secured parts of the hospital. So when the key is swiped on the electronic box mounted on the wall, a record is kept of whose key was used to gain access to that point. In addition, surveillance cameras also capture the moment that the person is standing at that box, swiping their card and opening the door. Almost everywhere in the hospital is covered by surveillance. So when the inspector asked hospital security 
to take a look at the video at the time the key card was being used. They got the video and there they saw the person who used this card. Still photographs were printed and sent over to police. And those pictures finally gave Inspector Ritchie one of the first definitive answers in this case. He was looking at the images of someone he immediately recognized, Giselle Esteban. The date stamp on the photos was May 26, 2011, the day before Michelle went missing. So Richie wanted to see everything Giselle was up to while she was trolling around the hospital using someone's stolen ID. He got a court subpoena to have all the footage taken inside the hospital on May 26 to be sent over to him so his team could pour over every minute of the day and track her movements. She actually had the nerve to put on a white lab coat and masquerade around as an actual nursing instructor. But he went back from the beginning to see where the cameras first began picking up images of Giselle. She showed up to Samuel Merritt Nursing School pretending like she was interested in attending. At some point, while nobody was looking, at least when Giselle thought that nobody was looking, but the cameras were, she lifted the instructor's key card off of someone's desk and slipped it into her pocket. Then, Richie, looking at these surveillance videos, it appeared as though she tried the card to see if it worked by testing it on the electronic wall-mounted box outside of a break room, which it did, and Giselle entered that room. So then, much later on that day, after the classes were dismissed and the campus was officially closed, Giselle re-entered the hospital through an employee back door using that stolen key card. Inspector Ritchie watched as Giselle casually made her way through the empty hallways, wearing a lab coat and glasses. She was going in and out of classrooms, turning on computers, and... It struck him as such really odd behavior. And in her hand, he could see that she had an official classroom roster. And it's easy to see because the roster is not just the names of the students, but they also have their pictures printed on it. So that's how they were able to tell that it was a roster of nursing students from the video surveillance alone. So in total, Giselle spent about an hour and a half walking around this empty nursing school hospital posing as an instructor until she left the building and did not come back again that night. Through speaking to a series of witnesses, Richie found out something else that Giselle was up to the morning after Michelle had gone missing. With her four and a half year old daughter with her, Giselle had paid a visit to the Apple store. Yet another trip that Giselle made that was again captured on surveillance cameras. She can be clearly seen talking to an Apple genius, asking him or her, I don't know, to help her unlock the phone, explaining that her daughter was playing with her phone and accidentally put a new security code in, and she was unable to unlock it. As soon as the employee unlocked the phone for her, he noted that the phone began blowing up with calls and text messages. The phone records confirmed that Michelle's phone at that exact moment began pinging on a tower near the location of the Apple store. Richie began following the trail of the cell phone, 
which next brought him to a Chuck E. Cheese. Now, Chuck E. Cheeses are located in North and South America, in the Middle East, and in Asia. So if you don't know what a Chuck E. Cheese is, it's a family entertainment center with a restaurant, an arcade, and small little kitty rides. There's like a ball pit and climbing structures, and it's a place where you can have birthday parties for your children. You can play the games and win tickets and turn those tickets in for small trinkets. So I'm assuming that Giselle went there to keep her child entertained. You could pretty much do that while you run around while she decided what she was going to do next with Michelle's phone. For the most part, Chuck E. Cheese is secured. The staff doesn't allow children to exit the building alone. And when you arrive with your child, you and your child get a matching hand stamp that is only visible under a black light. So you can't leave with someone else's kid. Chuck E. Cheese also has surveillance cameras. And it captured images of Giselle sitting in the dining area of the Chuck E. Cheese with an iPhone in her hand. And remember, she has a Blackberry, and those look very different, even in a surveillance video. Michelle's family and friends were calling and texting all morning trying to get a hold of Michelle. Giselle sat there and it appeared as though she was sending out text messages. And phone records later revealed that it was indeed Michelle's phone that began pinging off a tower near the Chuck E. Cheese at the same time she arrived. So Inspector Ritchie was fairly certain that it was indeed Giselle sending out those weird and cryptic messages to all of Michelle's friends and family. It was shortly after 3 p.m. that afternoon when Ritchie sent his own text to Michelle's phone saying something along the lines of, this is no joke, this is the police, you need to get in touch with me immediately. And Giselle sent her short responses that her phone was dying, she was having car problems, and those would be the last messages ever sent from Michelle's phone. From there, it was powered off and never used again. As the evidence against Giselle was mounting, there was still the issue with where is Michelle's body? So it was decided to keep Giselle out and free, but under surveillance by tracking her vehicle. Investigators obtained a court order and surreptitiously mounted a GPS on her car, hoping that Giselle would inadvertently lead them back to Michelle's body, but that never happened. However, she did do some weird things. For one thing, the vigil that was held for Michelle a week after she vanished, the one that Scott had quietly shown up to, Well, Giselle had shown up to it also, but she didn't exactly get out of the car and join the others. She was in her car, driving around the block several times, and later that same day, the GPS indicated that she had driven past Scott's house, but she didn't stop. And the reason she's acting like this is because Scott has a restraining order against her by this point. So, Richie was pretty convinced, just one week into his investigation, that Giselle Esteban was responsible for Michelle's disappearance. But he would still remain hung up on that one thing. Believing that Giselle, being kind of small and pregnant, that she was really capable of doing such a thing on her own. Is it possible that she had an accomplice, someone that helped her? If she did, it had to be somebody that she was close to. A really good friend, a family member, perhaps even Scott himself. So the district attorney told Inspector Ritchie, you have got to eliminate everyone 
before we can even begin to entertain the idea that Michelle did this on her own. And even if Scott had come under suspicion, even just a little, all of that would change towards the end of July when he came under a lot of suspicion. Some 63 days into Michelle's disappearance, Inspector Ritchie received a phone call from Scott. He sounded kind of stressed and upset. He told Ritchie that he thought that he found Michelle's iPhone in the backseat of his car. And Ritchie was like, what? How the heck did that happen? And now they're even wondering, is Scott the key to all of this? Did he have a hand in Michelle's disappearance? Or was he being set up? Was he being framed? But then Richie thought, if Scott had a hand in what happened to Michelle, then why would he be calling with some incriminating information and evidence? Or is this an attempt to try and lead police to cover up his role in this? Why would he admit to having the phone in his possession? Well, when law enforcement went over to pick that phone up from Scott, he also had a few other interesting things to tell them. He let them know that he did indeed have a restraining order against Giselle. In a sworn statement signed by both Scott and his mom, they detailed an incident where they were awakened out of their sleep early one morning by the sound of Scott's car alarm having been set off. Scott got up to check on his car and then turned off the alarm. But as he was doing so, he suddenly heard his mom yelling from inside the home. He rushed back in and found Giselle inside. She was in his bedroom doing something to his computer. Kind of like what she was doing at the nursing school when she was going in and out of the classrooms and turning on computers and stuff. This incident at Scott's house, with the alarm being activated and finding Giselle in his room, occurred exactly four days before Michelle went missing. And he also had something else to share with police. Four months prior to Michelle's disappearance, Giselle had been harassing and threatening him so badly that he decided that it was time to record her tirades. And in one of the recordings that he took with his phone, while their daughter was strapped in the car seat in the back, Giselle said this, I asked you, can we just be honest about Michelle? Because she is the one issue that I am really, really having a hard time dealing with. Starting from now, we are going to be honest about Michelle. Do you understand me? Whether you sleep with her, whether you share food with her, whether you talk to her, you will be honest with me. Look at me. You will be honest with me regarding her. Otherwise, I will take your life and hers. And Scott asked why. And she answered, why? Because you lied about her so many times that it's hard to believe that you didn't sleep with her and knock her up. You deserve to die for your lies, as does she, and you will. If you do it again, this is your last and final warning. And he asked again, why? And she just repeated, do you understand me? This is your last and final warning. This recording really had Inspector Ritchie looking at Giselle in a whole different light. This was not the quiet, diminutive woman that he had spoken to back when Michelle first went missing. It was clear that she had a capacity for violence, just in the way that she went from totally exasperated to angry to furious 
culminating into threats to do harm to both Scott and Michelle. So they became concerned for Scott's safety as Giselle had become completely fixated and obsessed with what she perceived was going on between Michelle and Scott, and it was driving her to do what Giselle felt was to her breaking point, to the brink of insanity. At least that's how she seemed to feel. But the investigation proved that Michelle and Scott, after that breakup long ago caused by Giselle, the two of them had never been more than friends. Michelle had a lot of friends, and Scott was just one of them. No more, no less. Giselle was convinced in her own mind that there was something going on between the two of them. And because Michelle had confided in him that she was pregnant and intending to terminate the pregnancy, Giselle was certain that the baby was his. Otherwise, why would she tell him something so deeply personal? Scott also turned over about 1,500 pages of texts and emails sent to him by Giselle. What it showed was a very long and sordid snapshot of what the last six years with Giselle were like. Her obsession with Michelle was so deeply rooted in a sustained hatred towards her. For years, Giselle spewed nothing but vitriol and messages full of anger and venom towards her one-time best friend. Eventually, that hatred spilled over to include Scott as well, particularly as soon as 2011 began. Giselle was literally driving herself mad with jealousy and obsession, and she blamed Michelle for her breakup with Scott. With her daughter, now a part of their lives, it was a breakup of her family. And as I've said throughout this case, the only truth that mattered was the truth that Giselle believed. She blamed Michelle, and there was no getting around that. And when you mix that with Giselle likely struggling with some serious mental and emotional issues, it's a thing that turned deadly. It was a thing years in the making. Because if Giselle had her head on straight, this would not be the normal reaction to something like this. For all of this to culminate in an act of violence that ends somebody's life, it's not normal. On February 17, 2011, Giselle and Scott had met up for some coffee at a local coffee house. Giselle began telling Scott about someone who had a big problem with Michelle and that she told this person how to find her. That this person was going to crash a party that he knew Michelle was going to be at and disfigure her. When Scott refused to engage in this conversation with Giselle about this, he got up to try and leave, at which point Giselle threw her coffee on him. Later in the day, she sent a text message apologizing, but said that she was really angry about the poor choices that he had made, and she had not even begun to forgive him or Michelle. Then, Giselle sent this text message to Michelle's phone that read, If you are really anybody's friend, mine or Scott's, you would just F off and leave my family alone. But all you are is the whore who had nothing better to do than follow me to San Francisco. That's all you'll ever be. The whore who slept with other people's men and brothers because nobody wanted you. You aren't my friend. You are always just a parasite. A few moments later, she sent this text to both Scott and Michelle that read, You two really do deserve each other. I hope you get what you deserve. You are both pathetic 
You have no dreams or goals other than chasing someone else's dreams because you have none of your own. You are both parasites. The following day, on February 12, 2011, Giselle sent Scott a series of text messages about Michelle. She called Scott an idiot and warned him that Michelle better stop avoiding her calls because this won't end unless she ends. Giselle accused Scott of falling for Michelle's act, and she told him that their daughter was already aware that he picked his whore over his family. Giselle also complained that Scott failed to give her a birthday gift and accused him of blowing his money on his whore. She also told Scott that she let Michelle's current boyfriend know about her history with him. For the remainder of February, many of the text messages that Giselle sent to Scott were rants filled with derogatory sentiments and threats about the relationship that she believed he and Michelle were engaged in. She complained that Scott had pushed her to the brink of insanity and warned him that he would be dealing with his actions and choices for as long as he lived. She told him that he would be unable to protect anyone and that his whore was going to get what she deserves. She also told Scott that there were so many ways that she was going to make him pay for what he's done. Giselle also told him to put a bullet in his brain, to die, and to make the world a better place, and that he and Michelle would pay for what they've done, and she was busy planning his demise. Giselle's text messages carried on into March. She continued sending Scott berating messages accusing him of lying and carrying on a sexual relationship with Michelle. She said that she saw them together at various places and warned him that Michelle had dug her own grave by being a homewrecker and a whore. Giselle also said that Michelle would not be an issue for very much longer. On March 7th, she sent a text message to Scott that said, You still keep seeing your whore. I've tried every positive approach, and you still keep running back to the whore who made you lie to your family. So now I choose the negative and obliterate you and your baggage-toting whore from my family. You will never have a good name again. On March 18th, Scott drove to Giselle's house to pick up some Girl Scout cookies that he bought from their daughter's troop that Giselle was supposed to have left for him outside by the front door. But when he got there, Giselle got into his car, at which point he recorded their conversations. She told him that she was pregnant again, but Scott didn't believe her. She continued to complain that she had tried the nice way, but he was still seeing Michelle more than he was seeing her, and that he did not love her, at which point she began hitting herself in the face with her keys, refusing to stop as Scott pleaded with her to not hurt herself. He finally told her that he was going to call police, at which point she said that he would be the one arrested, which is what happened, but the charges against him were dismissed. On May 20th, Giselle went to Scott's to pick up their daughter for a supervised visit. But despite the fact that there was a third party present to facilitate a smooth transition between them, Giselle still went into the house and caused a scene. Later on, Scott noticed that a set of spare keys to the house and his car were missing. Two days later is when his car alarm was going off. He went outside to see what was going on but didn't see anyone. He went back inside and heard his mom yelling that Giselle was in the house. When he went in there, she was no longer inside. He went around back and saw her by the gate. 
When he approached her asking for his keys back, she ran off laughing, telling him that she didn't have them. Later on, Scott realized that his computer had been tampered with. All the files related to Giselle that had to do with court and custody, everything that had her name on it had been deleted. He was able to use all of these incidents to have a restraining order against Giselle and a protective order for his daughter. Now, contrary to what Michelle's family had been believing all along in terms of what the police were and weren't doing in this investigation, and if you recall, they were under the impression that the police weren't doing anything, that they were dragging their feet, that they weren't telling the family anything because they didn't have anything, that they refused to entertain the police theory that Michelle was dead. And all the while, the family was mistaken. The fact was, quite the opposite was going on in those weeks and months, going into the summer of 2011. From a week after Michelle had disappeared, police had that GPS on Giselle's car and they watched her movements for weeks. They painstakingly tracked her digital footprint from the day before Michelle disappeared, when she was posing as an instructor at the nursing school, when she stole that key card to restricted areas of the hospital, to the day after her disappearance when she went and had Michelle's iPhone unlocked, when she turned it back on, and it began pinging in places that she was being captured on surveillance. When Giselle began sending out cryptic text messages from Michelle to her worried friends and family, to when she finally shut it down once she received a message from the detective. They watched her circling the vigil, going to Scott's house, unable to come near him any longer. He had obtained a restraining order four days before the disappearance. They were tracking Giselle's every movement, hoping that she would lead them to Michelle's location, but she never did. Inspector Ritchie, as well as the district attorney, had actually toiled over this case tirelessly, putting together the entire story meticulously in order to ensure that they had it right when the time did come to bring about the arrest warrant. They were desperate for the body, but it simply wasn't turning up. All the while that Michelle's family had turned against police, making all this ruckus in the media, hiring a private investigator, putting up a $100,000 reward for her safe return, as they refused to believe that she was dead. But fortunately, Mark Class was able to rein them in to give them some perspective from a place where he was tragically all too familiar with. So thankfully, the family began cooperating, they began listening, and they would be the ones who would be able to get the volunteers out there in force searching for Michelle based on what police were finally willing to share with them. While the police carefully constructed their case against Giselle, all the while in the background. And that would have been way more productive early on. That could have possibly brought about answers much sooner. And then there was another tantalizing bit of information that police ran across. And that tip came in from all places. The All Saints Catholic Church located in Hayward. A priest from the church reached out to law enforcement. And he was able to get in touch with Inspector Ritchie. He had something to tell him. He had a very curious meeting with a young Asian woman who seemed to be searching for some comfort and peace. He suggested a number of times that if she wanted, they could go and speak in the confessional, but she turned him down. She opted to speak to him in a small seating area outside his office. 
If she had gone into the confessional, then the priest would not have been able to share this information that he had with police. Now, he didn't know her name, but he did know that she was wearing medical scrubs and she seemed to match Giselle's general physical description. And she was there to ask the priest for forgiveness for something that hadn't happened yet. She didn't say what, but his interpretation was that it was some sort of sin. The meeting between this woman and the priest took place at approximately 3 p.m. the same day that Michelle went missing. By then, Inspector Ritchie was certain that Giselle was responsible for Michelle's murder. But he was still left with that problem as to where the heck her body was. For the time being, Ritchie had to focus solely on developing a no-body murder case against Giselle in the event that they're never able to recover her remains. They had some good evidence. Michelle's family was drumming up media attention and refusing to work with them. And all the while, they had plenty of physical and forensic evidence from Michelle's car. They had fingerprints from inside. They had DNA recovered to be tested. They found strands of hair in Michelle's car that came back to a match to Giselle's. They had Giselle's touch DNA found on the turn signal and the steering wheel. Michelle and Giselle had not been on friendly terms at all by then. And this was a new car for Michelle. There was no reason why Giselle should have been in that car, much less driving it. Because they did know each other, but there was a possibility that Giselle could use that to explain away the evidence. They also checked out Giselle's cell phone records and discovered that her phone was moving in tandem with Michelle's phone the morning and afternoon following her disappearance. They also had that surveillance video of Giselle at the nursing school, sneaking around, stealing IDs, messing with computers, all that jazz. They had images of her at the Apple store getting Michelle's iPhone unlocked. And then a little while later, they had images of her at Chuck E. Cheese starting to reply to all the worried messages. But the linchpin of the case came in the form of something police had seized the first time that they met Giselle, when they first asked her about Michelle's whereabouts. They had seized her shoes, and it turned out that there was some blood on the heel of one of the shoes, and the DNA came back as a match to Michelle's. So with all this evidence in hand, police were able to secure an arrest warrant for Giselle. They took her into custody just over 100 days after Michelle went missing on September 7th, 2011. They had blocked her in as she was trying to leave her home that morning. They told her she was under arrest. She very dismissively said, okay, like she knew it was eventually going to happen. And the family said, Michelle's family said that they were shocked when police told them that they arrested Giselle. They said that they never suspected her because she and Michelle had been the best of friends once upon a time. The last text message Michelle ever sent to Giselle said, No matter what, you'll always be my friend. But despite the arrest and all the evidence that the police had to move forward with a no-body case, Michelle's family continued to refuse to accept that she was actually dead. They wanted to know for sure, and that meant having a body. No matter how slim the chances they thought somehow that there was a possibility that she was out there somewhere. Well, 
They would get their answers only 10 days after Giselle was taken into custody. And of all people to have been the ones to bring the Lees those answers, it would be none other than Carrie McGonigal herself, Amber Dubois' mother. Another massive search had been launched on that day, organized by Michelle's family. Carrie came up with her trained search dog, who she named Amber, who was still young and in the process of being trained. As she searched, Amber suddenly began acting up and wanted to pull ahead of Carrie, so Carrie let her go. Amber ran, and Carrie followed as best she could. And then Amber turned around, came back, and was jumping all over Carrie. Amber continued in a direction, and Carrie followed. And before long, Amber stopped and sat completely still. As Carrie went to put Amber's leash back on, she noticed some pieces of rope protruding out of the ground and what appeared to be some bones also exposed through the dirt. Word slowly began to trickle through the command center and to the media that the skeletal remains of a young woman were found. Dental records were going to be needed to identify her, and that was going to take a few days. Michelle's brother continued to be really hard-headed about it. He wanted to hang on to the hope that until irrefutable proof came through that she was still alive. And that proof came through eventually. It took four days. And that's when law enforcement showed up at their hotel and confirmed in person to them the news that they had been avoiding for almost four months. There was a sense of relief that the wondering was finally over, but it was also accompanied with a tremendous amount of anger. Giselle would go on trial for first-degree murder in October of 2012. The evidence against her was damning, but Giselle had a defense and it was going to be ugly. She was going to admit that she had done it, but claimed that she did it because she was provoked. She said that Michelle and her became entangled in a fight, and it was a thing that happened in the heat of the moment. She portrayed Michelle as a liar who set out to destroy her life and her family. Giselle went into this ready to assassinate Michelle's character in death. And of course, Michelle could not be there to defend herself. Vilifying the victim. It's not a good look for any criminal defendant. The prosecutor was concerned for a good reason. They had this big fight. It was a heated moment. Michelle died and Giselle covered it up. That's a far cry from first-degree murder. And there was another hiccup in the case. That was the fact that the medical examiner was unable to say what Michelle's cause of death was. All of the bones that were recovered were examined, and not one of them had any indication of any trauma that had occurred to the body. So despite the fact that they had Giselle on video surveillance all over the place, before the disappearance and after the disappearance, there was no video of the moment the crime took place. All the prosecutor could do was put out his most plausible theory, that in some manner, possibly with some kind of weapon, Michelle was overtaken by surprise. 
that Giselle was lying in wait and Michelle never saw it coming. He thought that was the way that she was able to overpower Michelle based on the blood evidence that Giselle caused injury to Michelle's neck and that caused her to not only start bleeding, but also unable to yell out for help. So how did Michelle get lured out of the hospital and into the parking garage? Only Giselle and Michelle would know, and Michelle is dead. Giselle ain't talking. I already went over the time that Michelle had been seen walking across the footbridge just before 7 p.m. the evening of May 27th, and that the car drove out of the garage at 7.17 p.m. At 7.30, a nurse in the emergency room answered a call. The caller said her name was Michelle and she was a nursing student and that she needed to speak to her teacher. The caller was told that there were no students working in the ER and asked if she wanted to be transferred to another department. The caller said no, but said repeatedly that her name was Michelle and that she needed to let her instructor know that she wouldn't be returning that night because she got word that her father had had a heart attack and she was headed to San Jose to try and find out where he'd been taken. Around 9 p.m. is when Michelle's instructor had gone to the garage with that security guard to try and look for her and ended up seeing what she thought to be Michelle's Honda CRV re-entering the garage. And when she tried to flag down Michelle, who she thought was the one driving the car, the driver refused to stop, turned around, and raced out of the garage. The instructor had attempted to intercept the car on the lower floors, but the driver was going too fast. I've gone over much of what happened following Michelle's disappearance from the investigative standpoint. I'm going to try to quickly go through what Giselle was doing in the time period leading up to that day based on what's been outlined in the court documents. On Wednesday, May 25, 2011, two days before Michelle disappeared, Giselle, using her cell phone, which was a BlackBerry, she used it to send a number of text messages to a mutual friend of hers and Michelle's named Alan Ng. In these messages, she asked to be given Michelle's home address and suggested that if he didn't have it, perhaps his girlfriend had it. She also asked that Alan not tell his girlfriend or Michelle that she was wanting her address and that the reason was is that she was attempting to have Michelle served with a restraining order to compel her to stay away from her daughter. That she had made an attempt to have her served, but she was no longer at the address that she last knew her to be living at. Later that same day, Alan texted Giselle back and said he did not know Michelle's address and neither did his girlfriend. Also on the same day, Giselle's phone records indicated that she made two phone calls to the nursing school that Michelle attended. An administrator named Marjorie Villanueva answered both of those calls. The caller said her name was Jamie and she described her demeanor on the phone as friendly and calm. The caller explained that she was at the airport and she had plans to meet up with Michelle who was a close friend of hers. Marjorie did confirm that Michelle was indeed a student at the school, but when the caller asked for her phone number, Marjorie refused to divulge that information. The caller called back again later and attempted to ask for Michelle's number again, but again, Marjorie refused. This time, she did offer to take down her number and pass it on to Michelle. The caller said that the phone she was using was not hers and she would not have continued access to it beyond that call. Marjorie did eventually leave a message for Michelle to inform her that her good friend Jamie was looking for her. 
On Thursday, May 26th, the day before the disappearance, Giselle showed up at Samuel Merritt Nursing School and spoke to an administrative assistant named Karen Casper. Giselle said that she had an appointment with a student services counselor. Karen left Giselle in her office to go look for the counselor, and it was at this time that Giselle saw a hospital identification key card sitting on her desk belonging to a new employee named Elaine San Augustine, who was scheduled to begin working the following week. Karen found that the counselor was not in her office on that particular day, so Giselle spoke to Karen for a few minutes about the nursing program and then left. From there, surveillance footage captured images of Giselle using the stolen ID badge to gain entry into a faculty break room at 8.40 a.m. It is believed that this was to ensure that the badge worked, which it did. A little more than two hours later, Giselle made a series of calls from her phone to Kaiser Permanente. The first call was made at 10.45 a.m. and was answered by an emergency room charge nurse named Scott Moore. And I'm going to keep calling him Scott Moore in order to not get him confused with Scott, the boyfriend. So the caller identified herself as Michelle Lee and that she was starting an internship the next day, which was Friday, May 27th. Scott Moore would later describe the caller as being desperate to find out the name of the instructor as well as when and where she was to report. He found the phone call to be strange because students usually already had this information that is readily available to them from their school. All he could tell the caller was that she was not slated to work in the emergency room that Friday. A few hours later, Giselle called back looking for answers to the same question. A third call was made from Giselle's phone to Kaiser Permanente, this time answered by a nurse manager named Bessie Wentz. The caller, a woman, said that she was a skilled lab instructor for Samuel Merritt and asked whether or not the Merritt nursing students were going to be there. Bessie did confirm that the students were there every Thursday and Friday, but refused to divulge any of the names of any of the students in attendance on those days. Hours later, on that same day at 5.11 p.m., Giselle used the stolen ID badge to open a faculty entrance door. By this time, the school was closed, and from there, Giselle gained access to several locations within the building between 5.17 p.m. and 7.11 p.m. On Friday, May 27th, the day that Michelle disappeared, Scott Moore received yet another call asking about Michelle, a call that again came from Giselle's Backberry. However, this time, the caller identified herself as Michelle's instructor at Samuel Merritt, and wanted to confirm the name of her instructor at Kaiser because she wanted to arrange a meeting. This call was memorable to Scott Moore because the caller had given him the name of a former instructor at Kaiser who he happened to know personally. And he also knew that the person was not working at the hospital that day. The call was also strange to him because the caller told him that Michelle was on academic probation, which is information that's supposed to be kept strictly confidential so it surprised him that he would be told this over the phone. The caller asked to confirm that Michelle was scheduled to report for her program at 7 p.m. He told the caller that was not necessarily the start time because they had some programs that began earlier in the day. At 9 p.m., Giselle sent a text message to a friend of hers named Brian DeGraff, asking him, how do you unlock an iPhone? 
She explained that she found the iPhone earlier that day when she was at the pharmacy at Kaiser Permanente. Four hours later at one in the morning, now this is a Saturday, May 28th, Giselle sent a text message to her former boyfriend or fiance or whatever, Scott Mara Segan, that read, where is Michelle? Later on that same morning, Giselle showed up late to pick up her daughter from Scott for her supervised visit. After she picked up her daughter, she went to the Apple store with the designated chaperone supervising the visit with her. The chaperone took her there, at which time she spoke to one of the employees, explaining that her daughter accidentally locked her out of her phone, that she received a call from her brother and needed to speak to him but couldn't get into her phone. The Apple employee proceeded to reset the phone for Giselle and remove the passcode. Giselle was now able to access everything in the iPhone. When they left the mall, Giselle again asked her visitation supervisor to drive, and during this time, Giselle was using the iPhone. At approximately 3 p.m., still on Saturday the 28th, Giselle, still accompanied with the supervisor, her own daughter, and her nieces, they all went to Chuck E. Cheese. Giselle sat for a few minutes in the dining room, got everything situated, and continued to use the iPhone. But a few minutes later, Giselle told the supervisor that she just remembered that she left her oven on and she had to go home for a minute. Giselle was back at the Chuck E. Cheese within an hour, but no longer had that iPhone with her. Just before midnight, still on Saturday the 28th, the police investigation into Michelle's disappearance was underway, and it was at this time that Inspector Ritchie made his first visit to Giselle's apartment, located in Union City. I've gone over this initial conversation in some detail. This is when Giselle, among other things, said that Michelle was her best friend who slept with her fiancé. From there, Giselle said that she had attempted to call Michelle several times over the past two days and left messages, but none of her calls were answered or returned. Giselle told the inspector that the reason for her calls was that she wanted to tell Michelle to stay away from her daughter. He asked Giselle if he could see her phone, but when she showed it to him, she told him that the messages to Michelle were on auto-delete. But when asked to explain why messages to all of her other friends and contacts were still in the phone, she said she manually saved those. Inspector Ritchie asked Giselle to explain her whereabouts the day and night before Michelle went missing. She said that she took a walk in the evening because she was restless. She said she talked on the phone with a friend and eventually dozed off on her sofa. He asked her what she had done during the day, earlier in the day. Giselle explained that she had volunteered at her daughter's school. She took a nap. And then around 4.15, she went to Kaiser Permanente to talk to member services about coverage because she was pregnant with her and Scott's second child. She said that she first went to the Union City Kaiser, but it was closed. So she went to the Hayward Kaiser. She explained that she parked on the level closest to the maternity ward, but soon found that member services was closed also. So she said she used the restroom and returned to her vehicle. As she was driving away, and she believed the time to be between 6 and 6.30 p.m., as she left, Giselle indicated that she did see Michelle on the footbridge. Richie continued on with his questioning, and Giselle wondered if it was a good idea for her to even be talking to him. He assured her that she was not under arrest at the time. He wasn't making any accusations, just asking some questions. Giselle next asked, Have you talked to 
everybody else because Michelle has slept with a lot of other people's boyfriends. At that point, Richie told Giselle that they were in the process of going through the surveillance footage from the Kaiser and asked her if they were going to find anything to show that she and Michelle had engaged in some sort of altercation. Giselle said that she does not remember having any kind of discussion, argument, or altercation with Michelle, that she did not recall very much from the previous day, but she does know for sure that she was already in her car and driving away when she spotted Michelle on that footbridge. She also said that she was home by 7 p.m., at which point she was on her phone texting friends. Richie pointed out that there was something fishy about the whole thing. Here she goes, showing up at Michelle's place of work, and then poof, she's gone. How does that make you look? Giselle conceded that yeah, it looks bad, but she didn't know where Michelle was. He told Michelle that he was having a little bit of trouble believing what she was saying. That how is it that she's having so much difficulty remembering just what happened one day earlier? Giselle explained that she's been somewhat discombobulated since she's been off her meds for a while because she's three months pregnant. Richie warned her, if you and Michelle had a fight, now is the time to fess it up. But Giselle simply answered, I don't know. I don't know what happened to Michelle. I'm telling you what I can remember. I've been sleepy and forgetful lately. And he told her, the surveillance shows your car driving right past Michelle's car parked in the garage. But Giselle insisted that she had no idea that Michelle worked there until she saw her on the footbridge. And by that time, she was already headed home. Richie then asked Giselle if there was anything in her apartment that belonged to Michelle. And she said that there shouldn't be and gave him permission to look around. He asked her again, tell me about the meeting that you had with Michelle the day before at Kaiser. But Giselle continued to duck the question by saying she got home, tired. He asked if Michelle was interfering in her life or with her child. And Giselle said that she wasn't, but she would hear all about Michelle from her five-year-old. Eventually, Giselle began to complain that Richie's questions were becoming redundant. He asked when was the last time that she had been in Michelle's car. And she said she did not remember being in her car the night before, but it had been in it many times over the years. He repeated his question, at which point Giselle said she doesn't remember. That by this time, we're talking about four in the morning, on Sunday, the 29th. She was exhausted. He asked if she had anything that belonged to Michelle in her car and if his partner could look inside, but she refused to give them permission to search her car. That she'd already let them in her house. She told him all that she knows. That her friend has just advised her through text messages to stop talking to him. And Richie asked her what her friend was telling her. And she said that he told me that I have an alibi and to stop talking to you. And then Giselle started laughing. So Richie followed up by asking why would someone not want to help the police find a missing person? And she said that she did not trust the police, that did he ever consider that perhaps Michelle didn't want to be found, and if she was really missing, then the police should be out there looking instead of sitting here questioning her. Richie continued pressing her. Can you help me find Michelle? Giselle said no, but told him to check her social media. She gave him names of a few potential suspects, filled him in on a little bit more of the history, that since she was off her meds, 
She was having trouble sleeping and memory issues. Giselle eventually began to show some emotion. That it was not her wish for Michelle to be gone. She did not think they could ever be friends again, but she would do what she could to help, at which point she allowed the police to search her garage. Inspector Ritchie again asked if she had an argument the night before with Michelle, and she answered, I don't know. I don't recall. If I did, I would tell you. She followed that up with Michelle really not being an adversary of hers, but she was never a friend. Then he asked to see her call log, at which point she told him that she and Michelle had some fights over text messages before she changed her phone number. He asked about the calls to Kaiser, and she explained that she was inquiring about insurance coverage for her pregnancy. He asked if Michelle ever answered any of those calls. She said no, she had not. When Richie was done with her phone, Giselle offered to move her car out of the garage so that they could look around. He told her he was concerned about finding something that belonged to Michelle, but she said there was nothing of hers to be found. Inspector Richie continued repeating his questions. He told Giselle it's an attempt to get her to jog her memory, that he was turning to her because she knew Michelle and he wanted to find her quickly. But Giselle insisted she had no idea where Michelle was. She did not know how to jog her memory from the previous day. He asked if she called Kaiser looking for Michelle. She said she called to ask about their nursing program, but did not remember asking about the nursing students. He informed her that all the calls into Kaiser were recorded and that he would check up on that. He asked again if the surveillance cameras were going to reveal anything surprising, but Giselle continued to say she does not remember. Inspector Rich reminded her that if the cameras showed anything untoward, that she was going to fall under suspicion. She answered that she realized that, but now he's telling her this after he'd been saying all night long that she wasn't a suspect. He assured her that she wouldn't be if all she ever did was send text messages. And then Richie asked this question. What was it that Michelle did that was so bad? Giselle answered that being around her daughter was not okay with her because her daughter was beginning to be under the impression that Michelle was her new mom. Dreamers, Inspector Richie again circled back with the same round of repetitive questions. So after getting nowhere with it, he finally told Giselle to put her phone down, that he was going to put a hold on her apartment until he could secure a search warrant, and asked her if she had Michelle's phone. She said that she didn't. He asked her if she was at Chuck E. Cheese the day before. She said that she wasn't. He went ahead and detained her so he could ask her more questions down at the station. Now, I have to say before we get into the forensics that some of the things, not everything, but some of the things that happened here in this case that Giselle did were kind of clever. The way she managed to lift Scott's spare keys to set off his car alarm, to get into his house, to wipe his computer of documents with her name on them. The way that she swiped that ID card so she could get into the hospital and look around and find the roster with Michelle's name and schedule. The way she manipulated the Apple genius into unlocking the phone. The idea to bring her visitation supervisor and her daughter and nieces to Chuck E. Cheese so she could buy herself some time to ditch the phone. You see, they really would not have been able to leave the Chuck E. Cheese until Giselle got back. 
All of the other evidence would have eventually caught up with her, but Giselle was essentially operating as if she was not leaving any sort of digital footprint, which she was sorely mistaken, and it would be her undoing. As for the forensics, human blood was discovered on the third floor of the parking structure next to the Kaiser. DNA testing revealed that the blood belonged to Michelle. Now, coincidentally, Giselle also drove a Honda CRV. Hers was a 2006, Michelle's was a new 2011. Surveillance footage showed a 2006 Honda CRV that matched the vehicle Giselle was known to drive on the third floor of the parking structure at approximately 7.04 p.m. the night Michelle disappeared. Ten minutes later, a woman matching Giselle's physical description is seen on video walking in the parking structure towards a stairwell that led to the third floor. Sixteen minutes later, surveillance footage captured the images of who is believed to be Michelle coming across the pedestrian bridge from Kaiser to the parking garage. Michelle's CRV was found a half mile away on the morning of the 28th. That was Saturday, the morning after she disappeared. The stolen ID card was found on the front passenger seat. Several loose black hairs from the driver's seat were collected and tested, and those came back to a match to Giselle's hair. Giselle's DNA was also found on the steering wheel and the turn signal. All of the blood spatter, swipes, and stains inside the car came back as a match to Michelle. When Giselle's apartment was searched the morning of Sunday, May 29th, a pair of white tennis shoes were collected. Testing revealed that the heel of the left shoe had a blood stain on it. The blood was human, and the human it came from was Michelle. I've already discussed how after Michelle disappeared, phone records indicated that both Michelle's and Giselle's phone were moving in tandem. But records also revealed that Giselle's phone was being used in the parking structure in the afternoon before Michelle disappeared, between 4 p.m. and almost 9 p.m. that night, and the phone was back in the parking structure the next day, where Giselle had sent a total of 91 text messages between 3 that afternoon until a little after 7. And we know that soon Michelle would be coming across that bridge, and Giselle's texting would come to a halt. A forensic analysis of Giselle's computer revealed that there were about 300 searches for the name Michelle Lee. There were also searches for things like, is there a certain chemical that can induce a heart attack without leaving a trace? How to find somebody who doesn't want to be found? How to follow someone without getting caught? How to induce a heart attack? And where to buy potassium chloride? On July 29th, while Scott was cleaning out his car, he found Michelle's iPhone under a floor mat in the back seat. He immediately turned the phone over to police. And as I said, Giselle was arrested on September 7th. Michelle's remains were found on September 17th. That search had been significantly narrowed down into where she was ultimately found because Michelle's and Giselle's phones were moving together but then they both stopped in that area for a period of about 20 to 30 minutes. Michelle was identified by way of dental records, but her cause of death was never determined. Eventually, Giselle would admit to killing Michelle. I mean, she kind of had to. The evidence was pretty clear. She was going to claim that it was a thing that happened in the heat of an emotionally charged moment and that she was provoked. So basically blaming Michelle for her own death. 
She went on trial in September of 2012. And for this case, an acquittal was not going to be an option. It was either going to have to be first-degree murder or voluntary manslaughter. And the latter would have seen Giselle free by the time she turned 40. Well, after a month and a half long trial and five days of deliberation, a visibly tired and emotionally drained jury came back with a verdict. Giselle Esteban was convicted of Michelle's first-degree murder. She was indeed pregnant with Scott's second child when she was arrested and she had given birth to the baby in prison, who was then placed in the custody of Scott. Today, Giselle is 36 years old and currently housed at the Central California Women's Facility in Chowchilla, California. She will become eligible for parole in 11 years, in June of 2031. Reflecting back on this story, I realized that I may have been a little overly critical of the family and their initial reactions, their reluctance to work with police, the unwillingness to accept Michelle's death until they found her body, no matter what law enforcement was telling them. Because I know it's easy for me to sit here and see the things that inhibit an investigation. But in the end, the law enforcement in Hayward had not one thing negative to say about the Lees except to express their utmost respect and admiration for each and every one of them. It is not easy to stay strong and focused in the face of an unimaginable loss. And it really does take people who have been through this to understand. People like Carrie McGonigal. People like Mark Class. To advocate for families like Michelle's who were essentially lost in their grief and their sadness. And that will bring this episode of California Dreaming to a close. Don't forget to come over to our Facebook discussion group if you haven't done so yet and request to join. There we discuss the cases that we cover on our show. We share our thoughts and our opinions, not only about this show, but any other podcast that you listen to. Or if you've seen some interesting documentaries, if you've read a good book, as well as current news stories. We post memes, we post about our pets. Please come on over and share. You can also go over to the show's Facebook page and like the page and leave a review or a recommendation. You can also follow us on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. I am slightly behind on the happy birthdays, but we're going to get into May now, so I'd like to wish a very happy birthday to Jennifer W. and Binder D. on the 2nd, Lisa D. on the 5th, Anna W. on the 6th, Sue B. on the 8th, and Leanne K. and Gabrielle M. on the 11th. California Dreaming is proudly brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network, a podcast production company on a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to with an eclectic roster of shows with content including true crime, history, sports entertainment, gaming, and social media. So visit our website at www.orbitaljigsaw.com you will find links to all of our podcasts as well as a direct link to our merchandise store on TeePublic. Again, 
It's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Thank you all again so much for listening. I hope you all are still hanging in there. I think we're coming towards the end of the quarantine almost. I'm not really sure because I haven't been paying attention to the news. But hopefully soon we'll be able to sit down in a restaurant, in a mall, in a movie theater. For me, maybe a casino and a buffet. I don't know. I'm your host, Roseanne. Until next time, sweet dreams.